Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Jeannie Dietrich, welcome to The Self-Made Expert. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you being here. I'm going to ask you a lot of nosy questions about something you've developed called the PESO model. (laughs) But first, I want to make sure folks understand who you are and uh, briefly what the PESO model is. I'm sure Sure. we could spend a whole hour talking about just the model, but I'm actually interested more in the backstory. So I think that's probably more interesting anyway. Very good. For the audience, who are you and what do you do? I am Jenny Dietrich. I am the founder of Armand Dietrich, which is a, a, a digital communications firm. And I'm also the founder and author of Spin Sucks. It started as a blog and has evolved into a book and professional development and online courses and certification and all sorts of fun things. The PESA model has come out of spin sucks. Um, we needed a process at Armand Dietrich to, that our clients went through. And we discovered, gosh, 10-ish years ago that we were doing more than just media relations. And, and we were trying to figure out, like, how do we explain it, especially to a prospect in a, a new business meeting? How do we explain how what we do will actually result in something that helps them with their goals and that is measurable instead of just the traditional media impressions and brand awareness and reputation management. And so the PESO model was born. That's awesome. In the world of communications, um, what's, what's the norm? Like if, if we sort of sample 10 of your comp- competitors, what are they saying in terms of process or what would clients expect to hear from them? You know, I think it depends on the agency. There are some that are still really focused on media relations. And to be quite frank, that's what clients ask too. When they say they want a PR firm, it's what they really mean is, I want you to get me in the New York Times. That's that's what's in their head. Mm -hmm. And so that's their expectation is that's what PR firms do. And so there's a lot of education that has to happen on both sides um, if you want to evolve beyond that. And Media relations is great. It does a lot of really good things, but it's incredibly difficult to measure. And because of that, CEOs get frustrated pretty quickly. Um, So there are lots of agencies that still do that. And then there are lots of agencies that have evolved. And I think one of the struggles that we still have is that the executive tends to still think of us as painted into that media relations corner. And so there's a a lot, a lot, a lot of education that has to happen. And if an agency isn't sophisticated or savvy enough to communicate how that works beyond media relations, that's where we start start to get into the, you know, spin doctor, PR people lie kind of persona, which isn't true, but that's where we get that perception. Interesting. Okay. So what's the time frame where... Uh, the peso model came into existence. So I published it in Spin Sucks. That came out in 2014. It started to come to fruition in 2010, and I started talking about it on the blog about that same time. So we're you know we're going on 10 years now, 
And I'm kind of laughing because somebody said to me in the comments of, of a blog post I had written, can you like show me how this works? And I should dig it up, but I drew a, a picture. I'm, I'm not an artist uh -huh. of circles and you know how they overlapped. And then I drew out Pater and Sheridan Own and I was showing like w where they overlap, what happens and how they're integrated and everything. To say that that's evolved is putting it mildly, uh, but that's how it started ten, almost 10 years ago. So you, you were, let me see if I can break this down and you tell me what I'm getting right and what I'm getting wrong. So you, you saw some kind of need for a way to formalize how it works beyond just media relations. Yes. Am I getting that right so far? Yep. So there was yep. a sort of vacuum of... There's something more here, but how exactly does it look or how does it work? Um, no one had talked about that. What, were there sort of competing models out there? Not really. I mean, people were talking a lot about earned, shared, and owned, particularly in 2014, 2015-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody was really combining them into an integrated model, and nobody had included paid in there. So, And when, mm -hmm. I, when I say paid, I'm not talking Super Bowl ads and crafty copywriting or anything like that. That should stay with our advertising brethren. What I'm talking about is native advertising, sponsored content, social media advertising, the things that communicators do anyway, but now we're paying to to reach new audiences, not just doing it organically. Okay. So going backwards from that point of, okay, there's a vacuum. No one really has a model. I'm guessing what the precursor to that was, was a, a feeling of we're kind of flying blind here, or we do some things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. A, a sort of a precursor yeah. problem. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that's really challenging, for, especially for a PR firm, is we sell our time, right? And mm -hmm. so a lot of people don't understand that because they sell a product. And so our product is our time, and you can't duplicate time. You can't scale time. You can't just go out. You can't go make another widget, right? So you, right. you have to figure out a new way to do that. And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges that we have. And I read Built to Sell many years ago. And one of the things it talks about is you have to create a process. And the way I think about it is you can open a McDonald's franchise anywhere in the world. And the Big Mac tastes the same because it's a recipe. They follow the same same thing. Like it's two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Right? I mean, right. it's the exact same recipe no matter what. And so no matter where you are in the world, if you get a Big Mac at McDonald's, it's going to taste the same. And what we, what I was trying to figure out for my own agency is how do we replicate that same idea? What kind of process or recipe do we have that all of our clients have the, we can get the results for all of our clients, no matter who's working on it. And one of the challenges I was facing was my name was on the door, so everybody wanted to work with me. And again, I can't scale my time. So how could I make the, the experience the same no matter who they worked with inside the agency. And after I read that book, it started to kind of mull in my head, what's our process? What's our recipe for success? And that's how we started to uh, solidify it. So before the, um, the, the hand-drawn diagram, was there some sort of version one that was obviously mm. progressing in this direction, but not perfect? 
yes. Um, we were we were doing earned and owned really well. So mm -hmm. we were doing content and we were doing media relations really well. Media relations, of course, being the backbone of the industry. So we, would, of course, did that really well. And we were integrating those two pieces extraordinarily well. And then as social started to take front hold, and you know, when social media first came out, all, all the CEOs were like, it's a trend, it's for the kids, it's never gonna hit our business. And you know, I mean, you it, we laugh about it now because obviously that's not true. Um, so what we looked, we began to look at how can we use social first to engage an audience and to create shares and views and all those kinds of things. And then how does it help us integrate into a bigger program that results in something? So if you're creating engagements and shares, what does that mean for the business? And are you bringing in brand loyalists and brand ambassadors and how are you working with the trolls or the the detractors and so you know looking at that and then the final piece that we started to add in was the paid piece and that really wasn't until just about the time that the book was published because I couldn't figure out I, the last piece for me personally was figuring out Facebook ads mm -hmm. and once I got that then it all sort of came together at least in my brain right so if we if we leave aside the context of your entire career, we're talking about what maybe a four year um, development cycle for this. Yeah, if that, uh, probably three ish okay. years. Yeah. So I'm I'm an outsider to your world. I see you responding to increasing complexity and trying to create something that uh, makes sense of that. Is that kind of how you think of the peso model? I mean, aside from the the beneficial uh, parts for your business, do you see it as a sort of response to an increasingly complex landscape? Increasingly complex complex landscape, yes. And um, you know, executives want to see that PR actually drives sales. Mm -hmm. And for a, well, my entire career, everybody has said PR doesn't drive sales, and I think that's baloney because it does and it should. And so we were looking at that as things got more complex. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to keep up. Technology is con consistently changing and you could wake up tomorrow and, you know, Google's changed their algorithm. Like everything changes so fast today mm -hmm. that you have to stay on top of that. And you have to be able to figure out what all those changes mean for your organization or for your clients' organizations. And you have to be able to take all of that and then be sophisticated enough to show that there's a return on investment. So I think it was those three things. And it, and it continues to evolve because everything changes so quickly. I need to ask you about that in a moment. Um, the question will be, do you have another peso-like model in you, do you think? <laughs> Let's get to that in a moment, though. Okay. <laughs> so you have this hand-drawn diagram, right? Um, what happens next? How does that become what we see today if we read Spin Sucks or if we see the numerous mentions of this model both on your site and elsewhere online? It was a designer. I took my hand-drawn piece of paper to him and he laughed at me. <laughs> and he, he created it for me. So okay. he was, you know, he, he asked me a bunch of questions and, you know, was trying to figure out in my mind, how that worked and, you know, had read some of the stuff that we had created internally for our clients. And he's the one who created, 
who created it for us, made it visual for us. Got it. So you have something now that's more beautiful, that feels more, um, well, what does it, I mean, what does it feel more of compared to something that you would draw on a napkin while talking to a client? Does it feel more real? Yeah, and I think it's, it's, I, I'm just going to say this and it may not be the right thing, but it simplifies it in a way that's understandable. Okay. Um, you know, a, a lot of people think that PR is this black magic that happens in a vacuum and you make a phone call and then all this stuff happens and, you know, they don't really understand what it is that we do. And, and that's because the PR industry has done a really jo bad job of doing its own PR. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it allows executives to look at it and go, ah, I get it. Okay, take that and then show me how it's going to drive cold, hard cash for me. And they can make that connection. So it simplifies it in that way. I, I say this with love. Um, executives love these very simple diagrams, like, yeah. you know, the two by two yeah. <laughs> matrix. Yeah. And yeah. so did, do you feel like you had to oversimplify anything to get to that point <laughs> or, um, or maybe perhaps not, but I'm curious if you feel like you're leaving out important details when you turn something into a model that's meant for an executive audience. Yes, I think, yes, I think you there's a couple of things when you're when you have an expertise in something you have the curse of knowledge and so you it's really challenging I think for anybody whatever your expertise is to understand that somebody new coming in or somebody that doesn't work in it every day doesn't have the same level of knowledge that you have mm -hmm. and I say this to a client all the time he's one of the smartest people I know but he's so far up in the theory clouds that nobody understands what he's saying. And because of that, they have a really hard time getting prospects to buy. And it's because I say to him all the time, you have to dumb it down. And he's like, I'm too smart to dumb it down. And which I understand, <laughs> I get that. You don't want to have to dumb it down, but yes, you have to. <laughs> because people, you have the personal knowledge and people don't live in your world. So if you want, I mean, it depends on your goals, of course. If you just want to be seen as a really smart theoretical person who's out there talking about things that makes your head explode. Great. But if you want a prospect to buy from you, you have, you have to simplify it. Thank you for that. What has the peso model done for your business? Oh man. If I had anticipated what it would do back then, I think I would have been a little more strategic about how we handled it. But <laughs> Honestly, it was, it's the model we use in my agency. I included it in the book as an example of something that communicators could be thinking about. It n never occurred to me, never, that the industry, it would take the industry by storm. It never occurred to me that we'd be getting copyrights and having to, to follow up with people when they were, <sighs> sometimes I feel like I'm, just following up on copyright issues and that's not a job I want to have either. So right. it, that stuff never, it just never occurred to me. And so as we've evolved and as the years have progressed, we've learned things and we've had to employ attorneys and all that. But I think the biggest thing is I want the industry to use it because I think it does 
a huge service to us and to our organizations. And if if people are if communicators are using it, we can we can evolve this industry, which is what I want. That's the vision of SpinSucks. It is to change the perception that people have of the PR industry and to show that it actually results in sales or whatever, you know, if it's volunteers or if you're a nonprofit or whatever your goals are. Um, so I want people to use it. What I find is that people are taking it and putting it in their own brand colors, <clears throat> copyright infringement, mm -hmm. and then claiming that they use it on their websites. And they don't. They are not using it. They claim that they do, but they're going back to what they know. And so one of the big things that we're focused on is certification. And I never in a million years would have guessed that my own business would have evolved that way. So it sounds like that was the causal factor in taking you into something that looks more like an audience-based or um, mm -hmm. not quite B2C, but uh, well, how would you describe it, the, the evolution that came out of this? I think it was audience based. I think that's a really good that's a really good way of, of putting it. Um, I'm I'm very big on community, and so paying attention to what others are saying and you know the kind of feedback that they have, and you know, seven thousand brains are definitely better than one, and I don't like to work in a vacuum. So it is audience based or community based. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it does, they, you know, there are many schools that are teaching it inside universities now, which is great. You know, our, our new college graduates are going to come out and, and already know what it is and how to implement it, which is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's the evolution of it has definitely been in response to what's happening out there. Uh, everybody hates getting this question, and I understand why. <laughs> um, you said if you'd known, you would have been more strategic if you'd known right. the potential. So let's say a friend comes to you. They have something that's equally impactful. You, you, they show you the, the model, the intellectual property, whatever it is, and you're like, yeah, this, is, this has got potential. What would you, how would you have them do it based on what you've learned from doing it uh, very well but maybe not perfectly in your own eyes? Uh, hire an intellectual property attorney, okay. number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, you know, and go through that process because you do need to copyright the idea or the whatever it is, you know, first. Um, make sure that you're communicating it in myriad different ways, such as blog, podcasts, videos, the website, you know, all of the different places. And when you do that, that you're attaching your copyright. Um, I would have, if you want the industry or however you want to be using it, if you want others to be using it, have it available on the website so it's downloadable with directions on how to attribute um, copyright and all that kind of stuff. Um, set up an, set up alerts so that you you know when people are using it and unfortunately if they're not using it correctly that you can follow up with them. We do, we, I'm not big on, you know, having the attorney call. So usually what we do is we, you know, send an email first and just say, Hey, you know, just want to let you know, this is, this is infringement, blah, blah, blah. And most of the time people are super receptive and willing to change and, you know, do whatever it, it takes. So it, there, it's a very, it's very rare that you have to take a second or third step. So, you know, just have some sort of process to follow up when there is 
some sort of infringement. But I would say number one is that is hiring an attorney. Okay. You are a CEO. <laughs> you are interested in metrics that indicate that the peso model has been uh, a, f a financial contributor. What do you show the CEO? In other words, how have you monetized the peso model? Or is it not something that's directly monetized and it, it helps in other ways? Um, for my own agency, it's, it's what we do. And it's given me the confidence to be able to say to somebody, if somebody says to me, yeah, we just want media relations, then it's given me the confidence to say, we're not the right fit for you. That's not what we do. I mean, we can we can do it, but that's you're not you're not going to be happy six months from now, and this relationship will end badly. So it's given me the confidence to be able to say that. And it, to be perfectly frank, it's a bigger budget when they do an integrated peso model versus just one piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then in the industry, you know, we have a peso model course with PRSA. We're off, we're going to be offering a peso model certification. So we've been able to monetize it from that perspective as well. Thank you. So are there competing models now? There were not when you started uh, or when this process started, but are there now, or are there ways where people say, you know, that's nice, but it's not accurate. The, the real world looks different. There have been a few people, agencies, executives who have said, meh, I don't really think paid belongs in here or meh, I, you know, I, I think that it should go like this mm -hmm. or we wouldn't include that. But I, as far as I know, there isn't anything that competes directly with it. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, that seems uh, awesome and remarkable and <laughs> like what a great position for you and your business to be in. Why has no one else said, oh, look at all the attention, uh, you know, that's, that's flowing to the peso model. Let's you know, let's have our own model that competes with it. I don't know, but maybe we shouldn't tell anybody. Maybe, yeah, maybe <laughs> you'll ask that I don't publish this interview. But, you know, you have to ask, like, uh, success breeds copycats normally. Yeah, I think the copycats come more in the form of people pretending that it's their own or uh -huh. that they've created it. Okay. That I would say that if, if there's competition, that's more along the lines of what it is than in somebody creating something new and introducing it to the audience or to the industry. Interesting. Well, let's hope that that, for your sake, <laughs> that that, that uh, absence of competition continues. Are, you know, do you see the model needing to adapt over time? Do you see changes happening in oh, the sure. real world where yeah, you're like, okay, sure. this is a, we're eventually going to have to incorporate this or the model will need to become bigger to be more complete, anything like that? Yes. In fact, we are launching a second version in January. So, oh, yes. really? <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. So, um, I'm, of course, I'm interested in what that's going to look like, but I'm actually more interested in how does the model evolve? Does it come out of you being a practitioner, you know, being a, a consultant, having an agency working in the business, or where does... Like, how do you incorporate new information so the model evolves? Yeah, I think it's twofold. One, because we, we use it, so we know what works and what doesn't. Um, and also, on the SpinSuck side, we have a lot of clients who are agency owners. And so we, we have the benefit of seeing how they use it and what mm -hmm. works for them with their clients. 
So while we do, in my agency, we do B2B work, you know, we get, we have the advantage of seeing how it works in nonprofits and consumer businesses and, you know, other types of businesses that we wouldn't normally get because those aren't our types of clients, but because we have the agency on our clients, we, we have that advantage. So I think it's, it's twofold seeing how they're using it inside their agencies and of course how we use it inside mine. Got it. So the book, Spin Sucks. Um, you described that I think as coming in the wake of a blog by the same name. Am I mm -hmm. remembering that right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, how did the book come about? Like what, uh, <laughs> what was that like? Why did you, uh, I'll interrupt myself. Everybody I've talked to has written a book with a, with a mainstream publisher or a traditional publisher has not been super enthusiastic about recommending writing a book with a, uh, traditional publisher to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Their, uh -huh. their personal net promoter <laughs> score for the experience is kind of low. Uh -huh. So, um, of course, I'm curious if that's where you ended up. But, like, what started this process for you? Well, I hate to tell this story because it's not very fair and it really was way too easy. So, I, of course, was writing a blog, blog called Spin Sucks. And it started to gain notoriety, notoriety especially around, among the bloggers in the marketing space and then in the in the PR industry around 2009 and in 2011 a publisher came to me and said hey we have an author he's writing a marketing book and he's missing the PR angle would you be interested in co-authoring and at the time I was like wow I mean yeah I uh -huh. have to write half a book and I can kind of see how the process works and build some relationships right. so I co-authored marketing in the round which was great and then that was published in 2012, and at the end of 2012, I went back to the publisher and said, okay, so the real book I want to write is Spin Sucks. What do you think? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. So I signed the, I signed the contract for Spin Sucks on December 23rd, 2012, spent 2013 writing and getting it published, and then it came out in 2014. Um, so, you know, I didn't have to go through an agent and find a publisher and write a, you know, write a, a proposal or anything. I didn't mm -hmm. have to do any of it. And I, it's kind of embarrassing to tell that story because it was so easy, but that's how it came about. If I was to disagree with you, I would say maybe the work was building the blog. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't see those as separate from writing the book, like the, whatever ease was in the book publishing probably was paid for with sweat equity on the blog. For sure, yeah, 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 and that the you know it's hard for me to to equate that. You're absolutely right, but I do that anyway. It helps my business, so I do it anyway. But yeah, for sure, that and it was a good two two and a half years. Mm, the, the the blog was like yeah two and a half years of working hard yeah. to build that. Yeah. What role does I, this wasn't a question I'd planned on asking, but I'm really curious your take on. Um, there's there's almost a point of view embedded in the title of the blog. It's hard to do that. I think those are rare when you can have a point of view that can be reduced down to uh, two words. Yeah, two words is amazing. <laughs> a phrase, yeah. uh, but even you know three to six is mm -hmm. is quite good. How did that happen? How did you get to that point? We were sitting in a conference room in my office, and it was all of us, interns and everyone. 
and we were talking about this blogging thing and should we kind of check out what it was and you know we were just I think this was 2000 early 2006 so you know what's this blogging thing what are people talking about let's should we check it out just to see if it's some something that we could sell the clients so we we looked at well what would we call it and you know, one of the interns said, well, you hate it when you when people say that you're a spin doctor um, <laughs> or that they that they imply that you lie for a living. What if we called it spin sucks? And I was like, that's kind of brilliant. So we went on GoDaddy and it was available. And there you go. It was an intern's idea. And they got a promotion, right? He got a full time job offer for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so. Um, was, I mean, was it obvious in that moment that, okay, this is really aligned with how we see the world with our point no. of view? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Do, do you feel like you um, kind of invested in this idea or that you, I, what I'm trying to do is get a sense of, you have this spark of inspiration. It comes from an intern. That's, that's so fortunate. What do you do to turn that into an asset, like a brand asset for you and your business? Well, I'm still not entirely sure why we did this, but we failed miserably and limped the thing along for three years before it did anything. Three hmm. years. I mean, if, if I were to invest three years in something today and it didn't have any results, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I don't still to, the, to this day, I have no idea why we kept it going. I'm glad we did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those first three years were terrible, 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 terrible. Um, when you say, when you was, I'm sorry. When you say terrible, what do you mean? Like no results oh, or you feel like you embarrassed when you look back at that content oh, or <laughs> all of it? So, all of it. I mean, the writing, even my writing, like I graduated from college with honors and in, have an English degree. And looking back at the even my writing, I'm like, what is what was I thinking? And I think part of it was, you know, nobody really knew how to do blog writing yet. It was still very corporate, formulaic, salesy, you know, like sales brochure kind of stuff. Okay. And I think the other thing is, is that you know, there were 33 of us, I think, and we all took turns. So they're writing. So there wasn't, there wasn't a consistent voice and there wasn't an editorial calendar. There wasn't an editor. So the mistakes, typos, grammatical errors, the whole thing was, was up there. There were no images. There was no multimedia. And in our defense, some of that didn't exist yet, but like we did footnotes as if we were writing some theoretical paper for college, a college class in at the bottom. Like it was terrible. It was oh, terrible. That's terrible. great. Um, <laughs> That, that it's great that it was that sometimes there's a pivotal moment, right? And then sometimes there's just showing up and slogging away. So what turned it from that into something you're proud of now? Two things I would say. The first is, you know, the economy crashed and I had a little extra time on my hands. <clears throat> uh -huh. um, and so I took the blog over myself and I started to write, you know, we reduced it from everybody writing every day, and I wrote three times a week. Hmm. Um, but even still, I didn't know that you could schedule blog posts. So sometimes they publish at you know one o'clock in the morning when I got to a hotel and uploaded it, whatever I'd written on the plane. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they published at eight a.m. Like it just there was it was still. Yeah. But I think 
me taking it over and having some consistency to it was the first thing. And the second thing was I was at an event that I had paid a lot of money for and the keynote speaker got up and spoke. He looked like he had just rolled out of bed. He looked like he was hungover. <laughs> his shirt was wrinkled. He was wearing jeans that had holes in the knees. And I was like, that's a lot of money. Like it was just, and it was one of those things that it shouldn't, today it wouldn't bother me because, you know, people show up in hoodies and whatever. But back then it really bothered me. And so I wrote a blog post about it. And his community came out after me. It was terrifying. Wow. But it put us on the map. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's no, bad, no bad day, press. To this day, there are people who will say to me, they'll make comments about it. And I'm like, people. It was nine years ago. Like, That's amazing, I've evolved. Though. I've evolved. <laughs> right. But, um, I, I mean, yeah, there's a truism about, uh, there's you know, even negative press is not bad press. But what content plan would have that as the pillar right. of its success? Right. Is right, Like, write a, a yeah. critical blog about some, you know, person at a conference. Yeah. Okay. What did you do to um, capitalize on that momentum? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Just kept doing the work? Is that, yeah, is that what know, nothing I, means? What I kept, I, I realized at that point that having our perspective was valuable. So there was no, you know, I tried to play Switzerland and, and show both sides of things. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Like I'm coming out and I'm saying, this is what I believe. And this is why I believe it. And, Take, take it or leave it. And that was doing that kind of work is what built the momentum and the reputation that we have. And of course, subscribers and all that, all that comes with it. Has that ever cost you a client? Hmm. I don't know. It hasn't cost us a client, but I'm sure it's cost us prospects. Okay. Maybe not ones you would want, but even Fair. so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's spend our last uh, 15 minutes or so talking about you. So um, you've been in for business for yourself for how long? 14 years. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So uh, you've tackled risk uh, yes. along the way, at least uncertainty. So do you, when you have, done, have risked something, what is that like for you? <laughs> 2019 is, is a good, uh, this has been a very challenging year, very challenging year. Oh, how so? Um, so one of the things that a risk I took was to um, invest in lead generation and in a sales team. And it did not work at all. Oh, and interesting. it cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot, of course. I would have liked to learn it for less than a quarter of a million dollars, but um, it's it's been very challenging because of that and because of the investment. Uh, like the, the quarter of a million dollars was the cold, hard cash investment. And then, of course, you have the people investment, which, you know, you never like to let people go. And, you, and, and the team, I felt like, was doing everything they could and they wanted to succeed, but I... I couldn't lead them where I needed them to go. And so I've had to take a step back and go, okay, what is it that I'm missing and where do I need to get my 
skills sharpened, but also is there somebody who could, I can bring in who can help me with that? And so that's where I've spent the last few months is trying to figure those pieces out. Interesting. There's also the opportunity cost, not to add insult right. to injury. Yes, <laughs> big, huge opportunity cost, huge. So let's roll back to you're, you're in the process of making that decision. The, the risk, does it feel like it's a compass saying, this is where I should go, this is risky, so obviously I need to look into this? Does it feel like a magnet where it kind of repels or attracts you? Yeah, I suppose in a way it does, yeah. Um, you know, at, at this time last year, I would know, I would say like August, September of last year, we were crushing it, crushing it. Mm -hmm. And it was me and our, and my chief client officer who were doing all the sales and we were, I mean, but it was getting to the point where it was so overwhelming that the two of us couldn't handle it anymore. And plus it wasn't our full-time jobs. Like we both have other jobs. Right. And so, yeah, there was that piece that it was like even though I knew there was going to be some uptake in training and all that kind of stuff, it felt like it couldn't fail because we'd been doing so well. And that wasn't our expertise, neither one of us. Um, and if I brought in somebody whose expertise was that, that surely it couldn't fail. And it did. Right. Yeah. So the feeling was, um, well, let's not just focus on this one. Let's look across, let's look more broadly across your career or you, if you would be so kind. Um, other times where you've made decisions that were also risky, maybe not the same magnitude. Was there a sense of being drawn to, well, again, when you're in that moment, what does it look like to you from that perspective? tend not to be very risk adverse. So it's, I think because of that, I also, I, I see an opportunity and I'm like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Sure, it's risky, but I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. So it, it definitely is one of those things that I think you're right. It is like a magnet. It draws you toward it. Um, not to say that you don't do your homework and, you know, plan everything out and all of that. But I, for me, especially, there tends to be that allure and excitement of doing something that nobody else is doing. And I tend to do that a lot in my business. When you about, when you see something that might be an opportunity, do you sort of stop and look more deeply into it? Or do you kind of wait for it to persist and keep sort of tapping you on the shoulder? Or, or perhaps something else? I would say it's a mixture of the two. Like if I have an idea or something presents itself, I st start to mull it in my head. And the more I mull, of course, the more it persists. Um, but I make decisions pretty fast on that kind of stuff. So it, it's, you know, it may persist for two weeks, maybe a month, but I pull the trigger pretty quickly on, on risky things. What, um, how do opportunities show themselves to you? Like if we think of them as living entities, do they kind of, you know, like smile at you from across the room? <laughs> they pop into my head while I'm riding my bike. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. In fact, my team will be like, keep it on your bike today. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> it, I mean, does that apply to other forms of exercise also? Uh, maybe, but that's all I do. Okay. So I race. So I, that's all I do is ride okay. bike. Road or mountain bike? Uh, road. Okay. Wonderful. How did you move into a leadership position within the world of PR? I mean, it was kind of an accident. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I really think, I think it's twofold. One is, is because, you know, I, I had drawn that line in the sand and said, you know, we're, I'm going to start having a perspective on things because I have one, so I may as well communicate it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, as things have evolved, you know, I've, have, I've published two books, I've done a lot of keynote speaking, blah, 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 um, that it's evolved into that. It's also pretty scary because you don't want to lose it, your leadership position in an industry. Um, but also you want to make sure that you're evolving and that there's room for other people too. So how do you think about ongoing relevance? I think it goes back to the risk thing. Like I'm always... My, um, I do a podcast with Chip Griffin and he's, he's the agency leadership podcast and he teases me all the time because I'm always tinkering and testing with new things. But I think that that allows us to stay ahead of trends and, you know, I, I think with age comes wisdom and with wisdom you're able to look at, because you have historical knowledge, you're able to look at things and go, okay, this is going to affect the industry this way. And, you know, you can start to look at sort of staying ahead of that because you have that expertise or experience, I guess, you know, like right now I see some leading indicators of a recession again. And I only see that because of the, the last one we went through. Had right. I not gone through that as a business owner just 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I guess, um, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't be seeing those indicators right now. That time you spend experimenting, thinking about the future. I call it an innovation budget. So mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. is your, like, um, I think what might be most useful for listeners is to understand how much of your business resources go to an innovation budget. That could be, you know, you're the CEO and that's all you do. Or, I mean, you can frame it however you like, but I'm curious how you budget for that. Hmm. That's probably... 80% of my time and 50% mm -hmm. of my marketing team. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a sort of soft commitment of time yeah. or an allocation yeah. of, of, uh, resources and expertise. Yeah. Okay. We don't have like an innovation lab or anything. That would be cool though. Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> maybe that's the next step. So as you look back on cultivating expertise, cultivating your reputation, as an expert and a leader, were there moments where there was an opportunity that wasn't going to last long that you just needed to take a risk on? Hmm. I don't know that there has been. Because I think there's a there's another model of opportunity, which is like it's sure. kind of always there all the time. Sure. Or there's a... Um, maybe a, a nearly constant level of opportunity. So you don't have to have some special moment. What does it seem like to you as you reflect on it? 
Hmm. I don't know. You're advising a friend. What do you tell them? Advising a friend. If I'm advise, advising a friend, I probably am um, saying, you know, obey your gut, trust mm -hmm. your instinct. If this sounds right to you, do it. Go for it. Let's say it's too risky for them, but they feel like it's, they keep using the words once in a lifetime opportunity. Oh, <laughs> I'd smack them upside the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why? I, I feel like if they, especially if it's a once in a lifetime opportunity or it's something that keeps persisting, there's a reason for it. Okay. And, you know, it, it may feel risky, but I mean, it's kind of, it, 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 there's kind of the same thing where a lot of people leave their jobs and they want to go out on their own, but that's risky, right? Right. I mean, no stable paycheck and no benefits and, oh my gosh, I have a family and it's really risky. But I always say the hardest part of that is making the decision to do it. And once you make that decision, everything starts to fall in place. So I think it's the same thing. Once you see an opportunity and you make the decision to pursue it, everything starts to fall into place. We save the tough questions for the end here. <laughs> <laughs> Were there dry spells that you had to survive to get oh to my where gosh. you are today? Yes, so many. <laughs> so uh, what did those look like and how did you make it through? Well, the first one was the Great Recession, and it sucked. It was mm. terrible. Mm. It was terrible for everyone, though. And the interesting thing I think about that in particular is we were all going through it at the same time, but nobody was willing to admit how rough it was. Really? And it was rough. Yeah. It was really rough. Um, everybody's like, yeah, things are fine. Okay, we've lost a little bit of business, but blah, blah, blah. And, and I don't think anybody really was totally honest with it until we were through it. And then right after that, we had the debt ceiling debates. And at least in our business, clients put the brakes on paying on accounts payable again, because we didn't know what was going to happen. And that was 2011. Um, so, you know, it was, it was too soon. There was, hadn't been enough time to recoup from the recession at that point. Right. Um, and then this year has been really challenging. As I mentioned, it's, it's been very challenging. Right. We've invested a lot and not gotten the results that we anticipated. Right. So how do you do that? How do you make it through those kinds of uh, <laughs> challenging times? Well, I will be honest and say that the first eight months of this year, I did not. I rode my bike and I keep joking that I'm in the best shape of my life because the, <laughs> the bike took the brunt of my stress. And you have a lot of good um, ideas too, right? <laughs> yes. I, they're all on my wall right here in front of me. Um, and then in September, I was like, you know what? You can't keep behaving like this. You've got to pull your, your big girl pants on and get through this. So I did. Um, I bought a journal and I started to work on my mindset and every single day I spend the first 30 minutes writing down what I want to accomplish, who I can help, what kind of person I need to be to help those people 
And then at the end of the day, I write down what I've, I've been grateful for. And it's, for me, I'm a very, I'm very cynical. So it's very woo woo for me, but it works. It works. And, you know, since September, I have been totally focused on bringing things back around and we're not there yet, but we are certainly well on the path to getting back where we need to get be. Thank you for that. How big is the gap? I, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing all the ways this question can be misinterpreted and I want to apologize for them. Here's the question. How big is the gap between your personal aspiration for the kind of person you want to be and where you are now? <laughs> Huge. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I th Maybe that's part of what explains all the success thus far though. Has it, has it always been that way? Yes, it has. Okay. Have you ever taken a DISC personality profile? I have. What, what does it say about you? Uh, I don't remember now. So, I want to say I'm a high I, but I can't, I can't remember exactly. Okay. Okay. Last question. Uh, I think in terms often of leading and lagging indicators. You, you just talked actually about you seeing some mm -hmm. leading indicators of a recession. So um, let's circle back to the peso model. What, were, what was the leading indicator that you were onto something with this? <clears throat> hmm. um, we started to get some press around it outside of what we had done. So PR Week did an article and then Mashable did an article. Um, and referenced us and the peso model and me in particular. And I think that that was the catalyst for go us going, oh, okay, uh -huh. this is bigger than we anticipated. Interesting. Okay. And was that also something where you just kind of couldn't have seen it coming? Like, or there wasn't a, a quote unquote strategy about getting press for it? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> no, I had, yeah. There, like I said earlier, if I if I had known if I had known back then what I know today, I, I would have been I would have been strategic about it. There was no strategy. It was just I was publishing it in the book because that's what we used. That was it. I love it. A lot of success has come out of that. So I think it's a good place <laughs> for us to to wrap up and for me to say, uh, Jenny, thank you so much for this generous, fascinating. Uh, look into your journey into self-made expertise. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. You're, the questions, wow, I've never had to think so hard in an interview before, so thank you. My pleasure. I try to make it worth the yes you gave me when you said yes to this, <laughs> both for you and for our audience. <laughs>